What do you want of me? Get off my world. Get off my world. It belongs to me. If you can't handle rejection, then I think you better leave. You can call us fanatics, but the truth is we're hardcore. We love Hello and welcome back to Get Off My World, a podcast about all things Doctor Who. I'm Pat. I'm Kelvin. And I'm not Scott Glancy. What? <laughs> <laughs> It's true. And who are you? Oh, I'm Matt Kesson. I'm your special guest today. Oh, ha We must have gone back in time to try to kill Hitler again. As we've got Josh Scrimshaw and Matt Kesson, but no Scott Glancy. Well, we muddle on. So for those of you who are familiar with our program, uh, we talk about all manner of things Doctor Who, and because sometimes we can get a little spiky about things, we always like to start the episode with a section we like to call Temporal Grace, in which we say pleasant, good things about Doctor Who. And this week, Kelvin will start us off. It's just kind of a general comment. I have been noticing a ton of 12th Doctor fan art on Tumblr in the past couple of weeks. I don't really have anything specific to say, uh, except that uh, it's all been really great. It's all the whole spectrum of 12th Doctor stuff. There's like very serious, detailed pictures and cartoonier art, and it's just great to see all of that. Would you say that there's a characteristic or a set of characteristics about the Capaldi Doctor that comes out in the art? A lot of it's the hair. Just increasingly crazy hair. Increasingly crazy hair, and... um, I, I forget like how much range of expression Peter Capaldi has. I always think of him being kind of like stern, serious, and crabby, but like when he's actually happy and elated and things like that. There was that early yeah. running gag in his first series, or maybe the second one too, about yeah. how horrifying it was when he smiled. <laughs> That's yeah. the reason he didn't do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we should all commit to making some Peter Capaldi fan art <laughs> for this episode. I'm going to do it. I'll post it with this episode. Kind Matt like, will, what? too. He's, a, he's an Absolutely. artist. Yeah, I'll oh, just yeah. draw him, like, skipping through a field of daisies or <laughs> Smiling and yeah. smiling and smiling. I won't do that. <laughs> well, Matthew, what about you? You might have already discussed this here, but since the last time I was on the show, I have received news that... Which was last time. But since then, I have received news that uh, at the next console room convention here mm-hmm. in the, here in Minnesota, uh, one of the special guests will be Nev McIntosh, mm-hmm. who, of course, plays uh, plays my beloved Madame Vastra. Nice. And so I've, you know, blocked off that time, and I'm going to go to console room for the first time. I've oh, never been to console nice. room. Nice. Yes, yes. We'll, we'll and, see you there. We've gone the last several years, Excellent. this podcast. Podcast. Yes, yes, I'd love to. I'd love to join you. I've, I need to cozy up to Nev McIntosh. Uh, I, I am, I am <laughs> Look out, Nev. Yeah, she needs your body heat. <laughs> I am familiar with Matt's fondness for lizard women. <laughs> oh, most folk are. Yes. <laughs> You're hoping she just suns herself on you like a giant rock. <laughs> that is the plan. Okay. That is plan A. Anyway, All right, yeah. you'll want to come to console room then. to see how that shakes out. My temporal grace 
is a little convoluted because it's this emotional process I've been going through. Uh, We're here for you. Capaldi yeah. is about to depart. But you guys remember when they announced Jodie Whittaker and there was the viral video of the little girl watching the video announcement? And you see her little face and she's watching it and she's curious and very intent. And suddenly it dawns on her and her face lights up and she's like, Doctor Who is a girl. And it's this really Aww. adorable, exciting thing that as a parent of a daughter I really identified with and I was like that's really cool and it sort of helped me think about what is that relatability that makes you extra excited about the prospect of a doctor before you've actually seen the doctor or this process of identifying with the doctor and I was thinking, why am I so into Capaldi? He's a fantastic actor, but I also think Matt Smith was a fantastic actor. Christopher Eccleston. David Tennant is probably a really nice person. Um, and <laughs> no he's charisma, an excellent though. actor in everything except Doctor Who. I would agree with you there. Um, but it <coughs> dawned on me seeing this little child being excited about Doctor Who and being able to identify with a female Doctor Who that... Having watched Doctor Who originally as a child, there's a part of me that still watches Doctor Who as a hero that I might someday be like. And I think Capaldi, being that first new series Doctor who's actually older than me, and I can watch him and go, I want to be that cool when I'm 55. You know, you can't look at the younger doctors and go, well, some of them you look at them and go, I was way cooler when I was your age. Fair enough. Yeah, so that was that sort of revelation that like part of the Capaldi appeal to me is just that that he is a childhood hero to me at the age of 45. (laughs) Will it be challenging for you to have that with a woman doctor? Harder or less hard than a younger doctor? I don't know. It it will be strange. I will maybe enjoy her performance on a more intellectual level, not on I want to grow up and be Jodie Whittaker level. Uh, (laughs) But it's, again, exciting to see a little girl be that happy about it. Um, With Doctor Who, we should give everyone a chance to sort of identify with that character. Well, thank you, Scott. So... (laughs) It's been a while since we've sat around my living room table recording Get Off My World because our, our last one was uh, yeah, was a live show. So I've been saving up my temporal graces. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so I've got like a whole bunch of stuff here. And I was reading on the internet the other day because I follow Bill Sinkevich, the comic book artist, mm. on Twitter and Facebook. And about a month or two ago, he was fanboying out about meeting Peter Capaldi at uh, Comic-Con. Did he do a drawing of him? That I missed? I don't know if he did a drawing. At least I didn't see one. But he said, met the amazing Peter Capaldi at SF Comic Con. I'm such a great admirer of his work. We talked art techniques. Because, of course, they did. Because Capaldi is someone who does art as well as everything else in the world perfectly. Sienkiewicz's approach to comic art is really odd. In what way? It's very negative space-oriented, if I remember right. It's like, here's a bunch of black ink. Now I'm going to come and, like, white out parts of it. As opposed to drawing and then inking a thing, <laughs> right. you know. Recently, he's he's been doing the most punchable faces of 2017. I've seen that. Series. Yeah, I yeah. did see those. So Steve Bannon and Matt Lauer and... Agit Pine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sarah Huckabee Sanders. So, uh, so I encourage you all to go see uh, Bill Sienkiewicz's art online if you haven't already become familiar with it. So number two of my temporal grace, mm-hmm. I want to spend a moment recognizing the contribution of the director, Patty Russell who died this year at 89 years old, Uh, one of the 
most important woman television directors in British history. She directed, among other things, uh, the 1954 adaptation of George Orwell's 1984, starring Peter Cushing, which is excellent. Wow. As well as quite a number of Doctor Who stories, including The Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve and uh, Invasion of the Dinosaurs, which was not her fault. <laughs> no. Uh, and then she also did Pyramids of Mars. Oh, wow. And The Horror of Fang Rock. Wow, those are good. Yes, just died this year at the age of 89. And then for my final temporal grace, and you guys, I'm really reaching for this one. (laughs) But recently I read the three famous plays by the French writer Alfred Jerry. Oh. Ubu Roy, Ubu Cuckolded, and Mm -hmm. Ubu in Chains. Translated into English by Simon Watson Taylor and Cyril Connolly, the famous Cyril Connolly. And in a note for the second play, they say that this version of Ubu Cuckolded was adapted for radio and broadcast on the BBC in December of 1965. Ubu was played by John Moffat, who had a long and very distinguished career, including playing Hercule Poirot 25 times on the radio. Mm-hmm. But the Doctor Who connection is that the character of Crap and Take the Palcontent <laughs> was played by the deadly assassin himself, Peter Pratt. <laughs> this is the very definition of useless trivia, but I'm mentioning it here because I really, really wanted to say Crap and Take the Palcontent <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> crap that, and Take they, the, the Palcontent. How do you translate that from French? <laughs> That's what I want to know. I would love to read a whole article about how they did that. Yeah. (laughs) And now it's time for round two special topics, Dalek. And today, our special topic is going to be thrown out by our guest, Mr. Matt Kesson, who is a Twin Cities actor, writer, a monster expert, and all-around... Charming fellow. Well, thank you. That's very kind. Um, Okay, so here's my question. The Doctor has died and is regenerating. Um, In the usual way, still retains his or her moral center and curiosity and desire for adventure. Is still still the same character at the core. But otherwise has regenerated as you with (laughs) your proclivities and habits and pursuits. Gross. What's the first thing you do? <laughs> Looking up my real name is probably not a thing I would be doing because I would already know what that is. <laughs> it's your idea. <laughs> so, um, so like, I wouldn't immediately text my son and say, I'm the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, yeah, yeah, you're not regenerating into your life, yeah. but into, into just your personality. And I know it's all a bit abstract, but so, I like it. Can we assume that the doctor has his same sort of narrative conveniences? Like, yeah. <clears throat> He's always, you know, meeting people in power, and he has agency in which mm-hmm. to change the world. Yeah, and that sure, kind sure, of thing. sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that I got ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Just think. Uh, Let's hand this one over to Pat. Yeah, Pat, uh, what would you do? Uh, well, I, I'm starting on my fan fiction right now, as we speak. <laughs> uh, but uh, certainly you can assume that I would do for contemporary America and probably the world what the doctor is constantly doing, when uh, you know, in stories like... Uh, Underworld or... Sure. Not Underworld. 
the Sunmakers. Thank you, Josh. Sunmakers. Thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you for helping me out with that one. But, you know, revolution, let's power to the people, let's uh, overthrow, let's uh, toss people off the top of tall buildings. He, did, he didn't do that, but <laughs> yeah. some of you know, the revolutionaries did. Anyway, I'm just, you know, I'm burning with rage all fire. the time. And, mm-hmm. and so I would, I would love to be the doctor in order to uh, spark a more proletarian revolution. Excellent. I would go hang around tough. with writers. I would do nothing beneficiary like that. <laughs> I'd be like, I'm, yeah, I'm no, going to go have a decent adventure with Agatha Christie for starters. <laughs> <laughs> One that makes some kind of sense. I'm going to go hang out right. with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, oh, maybe, sure. yeah. or yeah. even yeah. C.S. Lewis. I would just hang out with everybody and nice. just not save anybody for a long period of time. <laughs> you know, I just watched 12 seasons. Seasons of Poirot, and uh, those Agatha Christie stories don't necessarily make a lot of sense. <laughs> Just saying, they're adaptations. Mm-hmm. Close adaptations of stories that make very little sense. As the doctor, oh I could God, not point a... the finger over stories that make no sense. But yeah. hey, hey, look at you. Um, there, there are so many potential options that coming up with. One that jumps out to me is difficult. Sure. Um, I'm editing, editing, editing. Yes, you're going to be editing a lot. There's a lot of editing happening right now. Well, that was a remarkable list, Calvin. <laughs> I'm just staring. That just right off the top of your head. I'm just staring into the foam cover of the microphone. Going, I don't know. Uh, you guys are all reacting exactly according to your personality. <laughs> this is perfect. I don't know why this is the first thing that comes to my mind. But I would like to go to the Ice Agency Mammoths. That's good. You know, some of the early hominids that didn't make it. That's very doctorish of you. Yeah. Rooting for the early hominids who didn't make it. Rooting for the early don't make it. Who you knew were going to be, like, probably more peaceful and wiser than this homo (laughs) sapiens bullcrap that we have. (laughs) Are you familiar with the Lawrence Miles story about mammoths? It's a non-Doctor Who story. No, I it should was, be, but I'm not. It was published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, uh-huh. and it has to do with Thomas Jefferson, who apparently in the real world yeah. believed that uh, species just didn't go extinct. It wasn't. That wasn't Thomas Jefferson. It was. It was the it was, general it, idea. It was a of the concept time. at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but of course, there was such untrammeled wilderness mm-hmm. in the North America that. You know, when Lewis and Clark went out, it's like, oh, we'll keep an eye out for mammoths and things like that. And so here's yeah. a, uh, there is a Lawrence Miles story about okay. going and looking for a mammoth. I did have half kind of, of a, Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> kind of a Doctor Who-ish story in, in the back of my head that would involve the Doctor running into a modern day uh, thing where Russian scientists are, are trying to clone mammoths from like the mammoth meat that they found. Oh, in in glaciers. Yeah. Oh, sure. And and it works, but it wakens something up. What I don't know yet, but crawl, crawl, crawl. <laughs> Probably crawl. Most likely crawl. And also, like the early hominid thing. Uh, I used to be very uh, <laughs> fascinated with Bigfoot as a kid. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. So, like, I just kind of love the idea that there's there's some branch of the early hominids that didn't die out and are like out there somewhere. That had managed to survive in secret. So, as like, the doctor, you would save one of those hominids and plant I, him I, as the, the Pacific I, 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 yeah. I think that's what I would do. I, the, the doc, I will start the Bigfoot uh, crypt, cryptozoology thing. 
Mine would be mine would be like Kelvin's, certainly fairly predictably. I would go to North America 113 million years ago, which is my favorite fauna in Earth's history, and I'd just kind of hang out there for a little while and relax. <laughs> the doctor doesn't relax enough, and I, I, you know, it wouldn't be for too long because he has to go and be curious and save things. But I'd relax 113 million years ago, North North America. Then I would go try to gather up, and again, I'm a predictable man. And then I would go try to gather up. Uh, Vastra and Jenny and uh, <laughs> and Strax and have them be my companions. Then then just whatever comes down. Then right. you know aliens invading during yeah, the, aliens high, during, yeah. during the hundred years of war. <laughs> right, whatever, whatever. Um, yeah, I, I do kind of like the idea of uh, the Doctor just kind of sitting at a barca lounger with like a gin and tonic, just watching like a herd of dinosaurs. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cigar in one hand. Yeah, you have your Capaldi fan art. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, I can't believe how parochial we are. <laughs> we just have not left the planet at all, even in our fantasy here. There is not a Doctor Who monster that I like more than dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah. So. That's my parochialism. Right. Okay. Yeah. I think I'll just go, like, you know, for a nice beach vacation on Scaro or something. You know? <laughs> no, there's Metabelius 3. I guess it's got giant spiders. Yeah, and there's that, right, yeah. there's that cat lady planet. I don't know. Did I invent that one? No, David Tennant went to a planet of cat people. They were nuns, though. So oh! Calm down, oh, that. <laughs> they took an oath. <laughs> Okay, now we are moving into the cyber-centric portion of our program. Uh, given that there was so much stuff with the Cybermen recently, like the, the last two Twelfth Doctor stories are about the Cybermen, and, you know, especially the early Cybermen, and the Christmas special is more than likely going to be uh, set uh, at the same time as the Tenth Planet, which is the first Cybermen story. Uh, we are going to do the cyber-centric stuff uh, in our segment, Listen, in which we discuss one of the Doctor Who audio stories. And of course, you may have already deduced this, we will be discussing Spare Parts, which is the fifth Doctor audio story written by Mark Platt, directed by Gary Russell, and uh, it does involve essentially the origins of the Cybermen. Hey, Calvin. Hmm. You know, we're recording this like pretty close to Christmas. The Christmas special is going to come out That's in true. about a week. I'm not sure when the episode will be released, but we should have done it a month ago. We really should have. You know why? Why? Because we could have done it on Cyber Monday. Ah! Ah! I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was released actually way back in 2002, which is kind of hard to believe this was the 34th release of the Big Finish main range. And just to give you some context, this month's release is the 233rd. So 200 <laughs> more releases. Yeah, yeah. Rah. So this was the early days of Big Finish. Um, and it has been a real inspiration for a lot of new series depictions of the Cybermen. Um, the Series 2 two-parter, The Age of Steel and Rise of the Cybermen, was ostensibly uh, related to spare parts, although I didn't see much of it in there. But Mark Platt actually got a credit at the end. I think it's more inspired by. I yes. think I read that Russell mm -hmm. T. Davies, he didn't write it, but he and whoever wrote that two-part story were 
inspired by this enough that they felt that they needed mm-hmm. to give credit to Mark Platt. I think in the depiction of the Cybermen, the world enough in time and the Doctor Falls is, is much more clo- much to closer. spare parts. Yes. If Mark Platt deserved a screen credit, I would say it would be on, on those. Yeah. So it, it's the fifth Doctor and Nyssa, which mm-hmm. is a, a, a pairing that you never see in the TV series mm-hmm. precisely, mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a, a very common one for big finish audios yep. because uh, it takes place it, between Time Flight and Arc of Infinity. This idea that there were all these yep. stories before Tegan yeah. was picked back up again. Mm-hmm. So for a long time, Janet Fielding and and Matthew Waterhouse didn't have anything to do with big finish, mm-hmm. and so it wound up just being Peter Davison and Sarah Sutton. But they do directly address uh, Adric being offed. Yeah, yeah, by the Cybermen or in a Cyberman adventure. Yeah. So you know, for the, for the benefit of the people who might not uh, be familiar with spare parts. Well, first of all, just pause this, go download it from Big Finish because yeah. it's two dollars and ninety nine cents for a U.S. download right now of spare parts. So it is well worth it. It's totally it's, worth. It's that. easily yeah. one of the best audios. And then come back. But <laughs> in case you listened to it a long time ago, Pat. Do give a little recap. Oh, God, is it me? No, <laughs> so the Doctor and Nissa wound, wind up on Mondas, uh, and Mondas is, is handled in this interesting sort of fairy tale way. It's a 1950s ish mm-hmm. underground London, literally underground, like they're in big caverns, and uh, there only seems to be like a couple of hundred people that are still alive on this planet, and the, many of them are being transformed into robotic cybernetic forms that are going off to do something mysterious that turns out to be uh, burrowing up to the surface of the planet and installing a big uh, engine that will propel the planet through space and eventually wind up in the first Doctor episode, The Tenth Planet. Mm -hmm. But much of it is... If I can expand on this a little mm-hmm. bit, uh, uh, much of it is just relations between the Doctor and Nyssa and the people in this small, tiny area of mm-hmm. Mondas who increasingly, we understand, are just doomed. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing – nothing good is ever going to happen to this. Mm-hmm. The Doctor essentially knows that right from the get-go. There's no future for Mondas and there's a little bit of a struggle with Nyssa who wants to save the people who are uh, who are on the planet and eventually the Doctor seems to kind of come around to that. Yes, okay, we'll try to do that. We'll try to give Mondas a future. But uh, – Deep down he knows that he can't really change it. Yeah, and you pull the camera back and we know as Doctor Who fans – what happens. But that makes it such a perfect story for the fifth Doctor who just tragically can never get anything right and yes. can never save people and he's in this predicament where he knows he can't. And, you know, everyone is trapped and unhappy. <laughs> Everything is failing. Families are being torn apart. Everyone is expressing their worst natures. There's no hope and the potential solution to all of this is possibly even worse. Where are you going with this, Pat? <laughs> and even the professional people have no solution other than to sit around and get drunk. Let's not talk about 2017. <laughs> <laughs> this is an escapist story. It was kind yeah. of hard to listen to, frankly. It was, it was a, a lot more difficult to, to get through than when I first listened to it however many years ago. Again, it's probably just because the world is different now. But um, I honestly remembered uh, it very differently. Like, I remembered the doctor not realizing he was on Mondas for a while. 
and then suddenly going like, Mondas, oh no, we got to get out of here, you know. And well, I'm uh, glad you didn't write this one. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so it's like, no, he, 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 he seemed to very deliberately go to Mondas just at the point of Cyberman creation. I don't think he deliberately went, but I think he immediately realized it pretty much yeah. as soon as he stepped out of the TARDIS. And he even has a little side comment when he's trying to pretend like he doesn't know it's Mondas. And he says to Nissa, it's fine. I'm sure it's Earth. Nothing. No big deal. And mm-hmm. as he wanders away, he's like, I used to be such a good liar. Which made me wonder. I think he's talking about the fourth Doctor. <laughs> he's probably. Yeah. It's just almost too many great bits of dialogue to even quote. And going back to that idea of him being stuck in this impossible situation. I love the sort of half-hearted gesture that he feels he might be able to live with when he just rings the church bells to warn the citizens of Mondas that something's up. Take control of your own history. I won't feel guilty, but maybe something will change and tries to sneak back into the TARDIS. It's a really poignant uh, moment, and I just think perfect for the Fifth Doctor. There's a thread of... Doctor Who stories, we'll talk about this a little bit more later too, that are kind of touristic, Mm -hmm. like they would occur in exactly the same way whether the Doctor was there or not, Mm -hmm. and maybe he embroiders around the details a little bit, but this is like that. I mean, we... It's weird because at the end we think that we have a, oh, it's a victory. Maybe he's possibly given uh, the Mondasians a different path. But we know, even before the final sting which is the cyber leader coming back mm-hmm. in and going, ha-ha, I am not dead. Boom, boom. Mm-hmm. But even before that, we know that it's impossible. Yeah, I that felt that was kind of a riff on Genesis of the Daleks, yeah. a little wink, because at the end he's like, well, maybe we delayed the Daleks by a few years. It had that kind of quality. So a couple points about the casting of spare parts. Uh, Blake 7 fans like me will recognize Sally Knevitt as Dr. Man Allen. She played Jenna on the first two seasons Ooh. of Blake 7. I didn't catch that. Uh-huh. Nice. And uh, Darren Nesbitt, who plays Thomas Dodd, the kind of um, squirrel. The body part vendor. The body part vendor. Well, he's a longstanding British TV actor. Uh, He's been in many, many things. But I know him as one of the new number twos from the Prisoner episode. It's your funeral, Mm. the one that gets the the medal on his chest that's got the bomb in it. Mm. Well, you know. Which is a a way of saying this is extremely well cast, among other Mm -hmm. things. It's very well written. It's well directed by Gary Russell. I have one really dumb question. The titles Doctor Man and Sister Man, are those Britishisms I'm not familiar with, or is that just some weird Mondasian? It's a Mondasian thing, I think, to set up Cyber Man. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. That's what I... That this is just a a title, a a professional title. Okay. On Mondas. Yeah, it it sounds incidentally Caribbean, but it's not, I think, intended to be. Yeah, okay. There's also this kind of World War II... Uh, they mentioned the 1950s, but they're on rations. Um, yeah, well, and the British were on rations for quite a few years after the war. Also because I think the um, processing of the Cybermen had this concentration camp idea where they don't know where they're going. They were having this terrible surgical experiment done to them. It, it felt like that to me. Yeah, a lot of things about Doctor Who have the echo of World War II yeah. about them. Um, here, the the boy, the boy of the family is 
he's impatient to join up. He wants mm-hmm. to enlist. I think mm-hmm. that's the term he uses. Well, yeah, right? that's yeah, being called up. He wants to be called up. Yeah, his friends have been called up as like Luke Skywalker in Star Wars <laughs> or whatever. I'm impatient to get there, of course. But what that means, and no one knows of this, is that they're going to replace your body parts mm-hmm. with cybernetic parts and they're going to send you out on the radiation-scarred surface of Mondas to die. And so, yeah, there is a deeply cynical attitude toward warfare, governmental service. There's no idea of war that's happening on yep. the planet, but certainly to enlist to help your country is... It's, it's just a slaughterhouse. Yeah. yeah, That connects up to Yvonne, his sister, who does get called up and... Conscripted. Yeah. Yep. yeah. And he gets to find out what he was pining for and see the horror that the cyber conversion is. And I think at the heart of this story, that is what so many people find so both amazing about the story and hard to get through is that Yvonne's transformation and the fact that she doesn't finish her processing and comes back to the house and the anguish is very, very real. It's the performances really are real. Hard. Yeah, it's yeah, hard to listen to. Her scream is really heart-wrenching when yeah. she comes back. So it's interesting that he started at the 10th planet, Mark Platt. And a lot of people have said they love about the 10th planet is that the Cybermen still have a human component. It makes it relatable. And he took one step back and made it even more relatable by seeing them as pretty before much a changed. human reflection yeah. of us. The humans before they They become. never quite go into any detail like what the heck happened to Mondas anyway where things got this messed up. I mean, it, like the planet is adrift somehow. There's or, no sun. Or even why it should exist in the first place. Yeah. Like you can you can barely think of a twin planet to Earth in the tenth planet where the continents are all identical yeah. upside down. But but for it to have a parallel development such that there's a nineteen fifties era British society that's underground. Mm-hmm. It, it's I, like very very old school science fiction idea. I mean like 20s and 30s kind yeah. of idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the things I like so much about it is that Mark Platt, instead of sometimes with the modern stories, we want to revise them and update them. He went with that very antiquated science fiction concept and just said, well, what's the next logical step from the 10th planet? There's something appropriate, too, for it being Peter Davison's doctor in that they base the new cyber template on his physiology. He just can't it's, get a break. Yeah. Jeez, yeah, that was just alarming to find out. It, it, it's almost a bridge too far for me. You know, it's like, oh come on. You know, the, the deep irony of having well, that, the post Mondasian cyborgs have like another a third lobe, a third lobe of the brain that's just for motor functions or something like that. Sure, we'll go with that. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, sounds great. But in any case, it's useful for Cybermen apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, a, a part of me is like. Yeah, okay, that's that's just an ironic touch too much. Mm-hmm. It does work in terms of the story, and it does kind of justify the Doctor being there in the first place. It, it prevents it from being completely touristic, because presumably if he hadn't been there, this would have turned out in some other fashion. Yet, negative yet agency, m- but... <laughs> <laughs> yet more horror to shoulder. For that poor guy. <laughs> he must have been so happy in Caves of Androzani to like, oh, I'm just so done with this life. <laughs> I'm just going to go be wacky for a while. I had also forgotten that this is appropriate for um, our December episode because there is a uh, pseudo Christmas holiday featured. That's in true. Here. I was totally it's so, forgotten about that. It's so weird how identified 
Cybermen are with snow, apparently. I yeah. I, there's this and the Tenth Planet and the Twice Upon a Time that we're mm-hmm. about to watch. Tomb of the Cybermen. Tomb of the Cybermen. Yeah, just the, the coldness of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's also some great foley in here, particularly the constant wine pouring from Dr. Ben Allen. There's always, she's talking to people and it's like, glug, 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 glug. Well, and like, then it, well, of course, becomes an important plot point later. I yeah, like, like literally they, they, they try to stop the, the committee, which is like sort of the cyber controller thing, by just dumping tons of wine into their like nutrient intake thing. Oh, I love that. Yeah. yeah. yeah the doctor slows the Cybermen down by getting them all kind of slightly tipsy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Dump, <laughs> dumping the expensive wine into the vat. And then like, uh, was it Yvonne who had like the, the cyber parakeet thing? It's a nice cultural yeah. thing because it tells you that they normalize this cyber process by steps. Mm-hmm, we sure. also have um, Thomas Dodd, who establishes that they were big on organic transplants before mm-hmm. they moved to the, the cyber transplants. So you can see how you take those baby steps towards accepting something, and then it gets out of control, which I thought was some nice world building on mm-hmm. Mark Platt's part. Normalization. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when I first listened to this story however many years ago, my my initial takeaway of it was you should just not make any more Cybermen stories. This is like it. It's I just think there's some truth to that. I you mean, know, like I don't know what more you can do with Cybermen after this story. It was like it just seemed so complete. The new series yeah. keeps trying to lift stuff from it, but it's not willing to completely commit <laughs> to, to probably this level of bleakness as part of it. It's a bleak yeah. story. Yeah, honestly, I think it, it it finishes the original concept. It rounds it out. There's not a lot more to be done with it. In the same way that Genesis of the Daleks it kind of finished the Daleks. I don't know that there's been a story since Genesis that I really think has had to have the Daleks in it, you know? I'm still fond of Revelation. Yeah. Well, we'll 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 save that for another yeah. day. Yeah. Revelation and maybe Chris Eccleston's Dalek and stuff. Mm-hmm. But you know, the, unless you're going to take it into like a very abstract direction, I don't know that these classic Doctor Who monsters can really be. Yeah. I mean, they're it, done. It, it, it never, it, it, nothing, them out. There hasn't been a whole lot that I would describe as new with Cybermen and Daleks. Yeah. I think we can all agree. They this fought each other. Yeah. Well, there's that. Versus. There's that. The pest control line. That was a cool line. <laughs> That's a callback to the uh, mat catcher here in I want, I want a whole cyber mat episode. <laughs> yeah. Because that was actually pretty cool in mm-hmm. spare parts. Like, oh, they have to deal with a swarm of cyber mats going over the TARDIS. Yeah, it's just like if Furby's got out of control. <laughs> <laughs> well, the doctor got super mad at Nissa for letting a cyber mat into the TARDIS. Yeah, it's like, oh, look at this feral rat. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, mean, I mean, like, way. Angrier than you usually think of it's the fifth doctor is ever getting. It's but true. Keep in mind real. what happened the last time he let any cyber technology into his TARDIS, right? There was a whole shootout in Earthshock inside his TARDIS with Cybermen. Mm-hmm. He did apologize, but it's true. Mm-hmm. That, that was a little uh, little toxic masculinity there that <laughs> yeah, going on. I don't think the fifth doctor is capable of toxic masculinity. <laughs> well, all those. He's no on Twitter thinks he is. <laughs> he's, no, he's no third doctor. No. <laughs> yeah. All right, so for round four, wonderful a functionalism, which is a round in which we do a lot of different things, 
Uh, tonight, we're going to give to our friend, the Reverend Matthew Kesson, to do a new installment of his long-running series, Reverend Matt's Monster Science. Hello, I'm Reverend Matt, and today we're going to talk about Mondazian Cybermen and their background. As the Mondazians appear in the story The Tenth Planet, their first appearance in the long-running series Doctor Who, about which nobody cares. These original Cybermen come from the planet Mondas, which was, at some unspecified ancient time, a sister planet to Earth, sharing its orbit and presumably also being formed around the spaceship of a race of horrible spider centaurs because everything is weird. Not only did it share our orbit, but it in fact precisely resembles Earth down to its continents, with the exception of being upside down. Of course, by the time we see it, it is in the far distant future of 1986 when it has returned to its proximity to Earth after spinning away for ages, and it has returned by being piloted back by its inhabitants. So maybe it's just upside down because they decided to put it into a sick spin, which they then abandoned halfway through. When we see it, it appears that it also differs from Earth in that it has no clouds, which of course would mean total ecological devastation, either correlatively or causatively, but then we are meant to understand that life is rough on Mondas, so I guess that's okay. Now, Mondas is hardly the first alternate Earth in our same orbit that humanity has invented in the real world. The first one that we know about dates back to the 5th century BC, proposed honestly by the Greek thinker Philolaus and called Antikathon, or maybe Antichathon, I've only ever seen it written, nobody ever comes up to me and says, hey reverend, how's it going, you want to grab lunch, Antikathon is pronounced with a hard C. This means literally counter-Earth, and it orbited on the opposite side of the central fire that the flat Earth also orbited once a day, and which the Sun also orbited once a year. Antikathon was proposed to explain lunar eclipses, and if you think actual astronomy is mathematical and confusing, just wait till you try made-up nonsense astronomy. Since then... Counter-Earths have been very common in fiction, albeit usually ones on the other side of the sun. They're on the other side of the sun so that we don't see them. Few storytellers have the raw gumption of Doctor Who to have an Earth twin that then just hurls itself off across the galaxy for inadequately explored reasons. So no, it's still here, hidden by the sun, though I will mention to my Trump voting listeners that this is not a real thing. We have looked on the other side of the sun. And even if we hadn't, such a planet would have a gravitational effect on its surroundings that we would have long ago detected as any grade schooler being taught melee combat by Yoda can tell you. As to the nature of this counter-Earth, well, it varies a bit. Marvel Comics' godchild Franklin Richards creates one one time, and it is then conquered by Doctor Doom, which is a story that symbolizes the imagination of children and how it gets conquered by Doctor Doom. In the first episode of the old Adventures of Superman radio series, Krypton had been a counter-Earth, with its all-baby space program and everything. Gamera villain Guiron lives on a counter-Earth called Terra, and 1980s cartoon characters the Dinosaucers, who were dinosaur people from space who have have long since been largely forgotten, and rightly so, hailed from a counter-Earth by the name of Reptilon. And if my demands are not met, then I will make this Doctor Who podcast into one about Gamera and the dinosaurs once every hour. 
and so on. Many of these are meant to be alternate Earths in a way that we would generally use hand-wavy alternate dimension theory to accomplish in these days. Of course, the odds of an actual planet, local or otherwise, developing in precisely the same manner as Earth are so spectacularly low as to be hilarious. But then, Doctor Who is not exactly hard science fiction, but rather science fiction so soft as to technically be a vapor. But that's what Mondas is. Its name is even close to the Latin mundi, meaning the world, except for its point of divergence, which is, of course, the Cybermen. The Cybermen get their name from the term cybernetics, which, technically speaking, refers to the interaction between living systems and machines. Hence, Cybermen technically basically means men who use machines, like, you know, toasters, post hole diggers, that sort of thing. And what's interesting about that to a non-specialist audience is nothing. So, of course, we are talking about the colloquial meaning of cybernetics, which refers to machines implanted in humans augmenting their abilities and or replacing their parts. And once again, Doctor Who is not the first fictional example of this principle. It may be that that first fictional example is the 1731 poem by Jonathan Swift, A Beautiful Young Nymph Going to Bed. In this poem, a lovely young lady described in the poem as a strolling toast, which I am inclined <laughs> which I am inclined to take literally and assume she's some sort of cartoon serial mascot, prepares herself for slumber by removing her wig and her glass eye and her false teeth and so forth. And so this first outing of the concept, artificial parts are emblematic of vanity, and we are meant to be horrified by them on that level. So, you know, take that, women. Especially women in the 18th century who were missing an eye and their teeth. About time somebody took them down a peg. They say compassion is a natural human emotion, but sometimes I feel like somebody must have invented it. The next major fictional cyborg was in Poe's 1839 story, The Man Who Was Used Up. This satirical story featured an old general who'd had so many of his body parts replaced that there was nothing left of him. It's a basic body horror story, as so many stories of cybernetics would come to be, but it also set up a more specific theme to the cybernetic story, humanity being overcome by machines, symbolized graphically by the flesh itself being replaced. Even in Poe's time, the Industrial Revolution had begun, and what shall we become when the power of steam replaces Simple, honest child labor. It wouldn't all be doom and gloom, I should add. In 1911, the French writer Jean de la Hire would invent a pulp hero called the Nyctalope, which is a word that I adore. It's my crap and tate, the palcontent. It sounds like an eye-cleaning membrane that has antlers, and if anyone would like to produce any art of this, please send it to me at revmatsmonsterscience.com. What the name is, in fact, is a romance-language version of the phrase night vision, because what you have to understand about the Nyctalope was that he had a number of mechanical body parts that gave him unusual powers, which he used to fight mad scientists and space aliens and stuff. So here, well in advance of the golden age of the pulp heroes, we have a character that is very much a modern superhero, and when Disney inevitably buys the company that holds the rights, then he can fight Rocket Raccoon. <laughs> By the time we get back to the Cybermen, it's back to the horror. The Cybermen are part human, part machine. They are emotionless. They are a collective that seeks to forcibly recruit outsiders. They are into body socks, especially the Mondasians. They sound familiar to American nerds unfamiliar with Doctor Who, though importantly, the body socks on ours are in dark shades. 
We are overcome by machines. We become ruthless, cold, conforming, indistinguishable from one another. And what's worse is that this is inevitable, or at least likely. What happened to the Mondasians, which they did to themselves to survive the rigors of their planet being hurled from the solar system, and I don't mean to judge, but I feel like if Earth left the solar system, we would have problems that couldn't be solved by putting handlebars on our heads, has happened on other planets and on other dimensions. Cybermen, handlebars, and all are canonically one of the normal progressions of humanoid society in Doctor Who. This may sound unlikely here in our reasonable universe, but in fairness, it is still more likely than the simultaneous galaxy-wide evolution of humans, and particularly Caucasians, by a factor of 1100 kabillion hojillion. So maybe it's inevitable that there are Borg in Star Trek. Maybe it's weird that there aren't any Cybermen in Star Wars. Hey, everybody, let's have an argument about Star Wars. Luckily, <laughs> luckily the Mondasians have a weakness, radiation. Thematically, it's a good weakness. The people given over to technology are undone by one of technology's worst byproducts. But if Cybermen occur throughout time and space, can they ever really be stopped? And if not, what's the point of trying? Because Carol and John is cute? All right, fine. <laughs> and now it's time for round five. It is the randomizer, only it's not random at all this time because of our cyber theme. We are going to talk about the 10th planet in anticipation of Twice Upon a Time. Uh, the 10th planet, uh, obviously significant in Doctor Who lore because it is the last first Doctor story. And so, by definition, the first regeneration story and also the first Cyberman story. Uh, it was written by... Kit Peddler and directed by Derek Martinus. Mm. Kind of hard to know even where to start. Let's start with questions about race. Uh, yes, that's a great place to start. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, first let's sideline any question about gender because the only woman in the entire story is Polly. That and we know she of. makes coffee. She's yeah. imported mm. as part of the regular cast and she's essentially incidental. Having said that, most of the regular cast is incidental, and we'll get to that in a further discussion of the story. But there's something utopian about this mm -hmm. in a 1966 context in that everybody is international. The, the station is international. Mm -hmm. now, yes, it is the South Pole base of international stereotypes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's officially what it's called. <laughs> was, that, was that one guy Italian? Do you mean the guy who Tito. was singing La Donna Immobile from Rigoletto and I saying Mamma Mia a lot? And had I the think... centerfolds taped up above his bunk? Well, ah. he, he never once held up a pizza and made like his thumb and forefinger into a circle. So I was never entirely sure yeah. if he was Italian. It remained ambiguous. Oh, who can tell? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But there's an Australian fella on the, the shuttle, mm -hmm. and uh, notably Earl Cameron, a, mm -hmm. br a black Bermudan actor, uh, is the other astronaut. Yeah. Uh, I remember dimly uh, a DVD extra interview that I listened to with him that said that he had some problems with Hartnell. Actually, I rewatched it. It was really oh, interesting. Tell me, tell me. Um, anyone listening, if you have the 10th Planet DVD, you should really watch the making of the 10th Planet, because it's really frank about William Hartnell and huh. about uh, putting that show together. And the main two people interviewed is uh, uh, Nick Wills and Earl Cameron. Cameron. Yes. Earl Cameron talks about how it didn't bother him and mm -hmm. that he said it, which I thought was a great way to phrase it. He said uh, it was William Hartnell's problem, not mine. Yeah. So he was very dignified about it and great. It's funny that, you know, we talked about the smugglers 
uh, some months ago, mm-hmm. which is the episode or the story right before this one. Mm-hmm. And we were like, was that the the first Doctor Who with a black actor in it? Elroy Joseph? Yeah. And we looked it up, and yes, it was. Mm-hmm. And here, the very next one has, well, it's got Earl Cameron. It also has an extra behind the UN Secretary General. There's another oh, black yeah, guy yeah. there. As in, like an African dignitary. Yeah, it's an African dress, yeah. kind of mm-hmm. uh, ambiguous. But I wonder who the casting director was at this time yeah. that just... Uh, but- in that extra, Earl Cameron actually says that when he got the call from his agent, he was like, what? He didn't believe it in 1966. They want me to play an astronaut? Oh, he, thought, nice. he, he said it, he thought it had to be a mistake. His Wikipedia page says that uh, he didn't feel as much resistance to him in uh, British television because he's from Bermuda, mm-hmm. and so when he spoke... He sounds like an American to mm-hmm. British audiences, so they would oh. they could cast him as a black American, which is presumably the kind of character that he's playing. I, I, I assumed he was yeah. supposed to be an American. Yeah, uh, uh, he was also in Thunderball, by the way, and he's still alive. Nice, and he's one hundred years, years old. Wow, <laughs> good. He's for currently him. the Absolutely. oldest living person to have appeared in Doctor Who. <laughs> really, that's great. That is amazing. That is awesome. Uh, a comment I've made in the past about Doctor Who is I never felt Doctor Who was particularly good at near future set stories but this is actually a pretty fair near future story i mean when you given that it's made in 1966 i right. mean you know it's not like there's uh, radically different modes of dress the military can still recognize each other ben talks about yeah he's a member of the british navy and they're like yeah, yeah. it's not like there's super far out technology i mean there's the z-bomb which I just couldn't stop thinking of as the Omega Bomb from Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Just FYI. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. That, that, that's a very... Uh, Crossover. Late, yeah. Very late 60s kind of idea, the bomb that will destroy the world. Yeah. No, Where you did would that bi- come from? Because yeah. you would build that. What kind of idea is... Yeah. <laughs> what does that symbolize? Preposterous. <laughs> um, Were you going to talk about the Upside Down Planet? The Upside Down Planet's a little weird. Yeah. There's a lot of astronomical physics that is super strange. Oh, it's a, yeah, it's a <laughs> nightmare. I mean, a lot like, wait, okay, they just, suddenly there's this new planet that we've never noticed before. The gravity is affecting a space mission that's apparently just between, like, Earth and the moon or something. Yeah, it used to be a twin planet to Earth right next to it. Mm-hmm. It was spun off into space by the arrival of the moon because, yeah, I mean, I, sure. <laughs> well, of course it was. The moon just hip-checked. <laughs> it just went flying. It flew 200 light years away, and then everything went bad, and they attached some engines to it and flew it back. It's, it's crazier than Space 1999. It's crazier than anything. This is written by the show's scientific advisor. Is it really? Yep. Yes. If you showed this series to, I don't know, to NASA, they would go insane and start tearing out each other's throats. You know, I mean, it's... it's, it's a, he wasn't it's... a good scientific advisor. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he, he was a doctor. Yeah. He wasn't uh, an astronomer. Yeah. There's nothing about the story of Mondas as yeah. a planet that is not... Completely ludicrous. That is not. That is not insane. And that's fine because it's Doctor Who. But uh, but, but it's, just, the it's other, just the, the worst other, science you've ever heard of. You know, the <laughs> other non-planetary stuff is is pretty good, really. Fair enough. But um, the guy who plays General Cutler, the American guy, well, he's Canadian. Oh, he is yeah. Canadian. Oh, yeah. Well, that explains. That is, <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, like, that's pretty darn good American accent work. Yeah, he got a lot of work in British television. I think he was in an episode of The Avengers, or he was in 2001: A Space Odyssey. Oh, interesting. Oh. Robert Beatty. Yep. He died in 1992. 
He was in two of the greatest British films of the first half of the 20th century, A Matter of Life and Death, Mm -hmm. the Powell and Pressburger film, and Odd Man Out, the Carol Reed film, uh, which also has William Hartnell in it, by the way, 1947. And then many, 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 many other things, including... Jesus of Nazareth, wow. The Secret of Dr. Mabuza, 1964, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, Where Eagles Dare with Oh my God with Richard Burton, but of course let's not overlook his role as left door knocker in 1986's Labyrinth. <laughs> <laughs> the one that really jumped out at me is he's the president in Superman Four and tanker captain in Superman Three. Yeah, wow. This is a man. Who lived his best life? <laughs> <laughs> I actually think he's quite good in this. I he do is too. Easy to not like, yet the script asks you to sympathize with him just enough with his yeah. son being put in jeopardy. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, he has uh, a very specific reason to be acting the way that he is. He's not just generic military a hole. Yeah, which you you get a lot of these military guys going off the rails in genre stuff all the time. You see it in Doctor Who. Uh, The example that comes to mind is Michael Biehn in James Cameron's The Abyss, you know, who just kind of goes bonkers for no particular reason. But I think speaking in genre terms, you don't really need a reason for a highly strung military guy to go go bananas. And so it's kind of nice for him to have a very specific familial reason Mm -hmm. for that to happen here. I would just like to say a few words about the fact that Earl Cameron's spacesuit would later be used in the film The Empire Strikes Back yeah, as boss, the costume of Bosk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do we know how true that is? Or did it some... looks very simple. Yeah, I've never heard the debunking. They look identical. Um, I mean, if, it, if it's not the Doctor Who suit, then they attempted to replicate it as perfectly no, I, as I, possible. I, I have heard that, like, for some background characters in the Star Wars movies, they did raid Elstree Studios, S- some, sort of, uh, yeah. Some Doctor Who stuff. Wow. Uh, so, is this a touristic Doctor Who story? Would it have occurred in substantially the same way if the Doctor and his crew were not there? The Doctor is sidelined for it. doesn't appear on screen He's for most gone. of it. He doesn't really do anything. Yeah, most meanwhile, of all, somewhere of, else. all of episode three. William Hartnell, at the last minute, called in sick. He called in sick to work on his second to last episode. <laughs> As a retail manager, I've seen this happen. <laughs> Some guy gives his notice, and, and then it's like his second last day, and he calls in, and he's like, <coughs> I can't come into work today. Mm. But that was a body double they got in to play Hartnell passing out. Oh, wow. It feels like it might be part of the story, because we as fans know he's going to regenerate, but they were scrambling, and it's also okay. why Ben has so much to do, and, yeah. and has to say things like, the doctor told me this, but we never saw or this heard the conversation. doctor yeah. tell him yeah. that, because they had to split... The doctor's dialogue between Ben and the stuff that sounded too scientific they apparently gave to Barclay. Yeah. The the story was intentionally written for the doctor to basically just kind of sit in a chair and say stuff and not really do anything because they knew Hartnell wasn't really up to no, but complicated does. memorization and blocking. Maybe I'm misremembering, but he does sabotage the rocket with the Omega Bomb that the mutants worship. Or does he not? No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Right. You're, well, you're, thinking, you're thinking of Genesis of the Dollars. <laughs> um, William Hartnell's best story. <laughs> no, I mean, they're, they're about to shoot the Omega Bomb into space, and it doesn't work, and that's because of something. Was it because Ben successfully clipped the pin? Like It was Ben who did it. 
He did manage to succeed what Dr. Barkley told him to do oh, okay, before right. uh, Cutler yes. slugs him. And Cutler doesn't slug him. He throws him over the railing, and there's some unspecified drop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, whoa. Ben was pretty tough. rocked by that. I yeah. mean, you know, he's like holding a thing on his head. Well, it looked like he fell at least a full story. Yeah. But that, I think, is a really nice scene. That's the mm-hmm. episode three cliffhanger. They get a lot of suspense out of mm-hmm. a countdown. I couldn't remember. And they superimposed the, the countdown the numbers, numbers yeah. on the scenes, yeah. which is pretty unusual for Doctor Who. It's been a while since I watched this, and I honestly couldn't remember if that C-bomb actually got launched or not. And I was actually going, what's going to happen? And (laughs) apparently there's some other weird complication that happened with this story. And just before filming, Michael Craze had some kind of emergency nose surgery. Yeah, I did hear this, and this fake snow went up his nose. Yeah, yeah, the the fake snow is basically chemical dust, and it really irritated his recent (laughs) surgery. Wow. I guess he was in a great deal of discomfort, but he just kind of soldiered on. Oh, professionals. We should talk about the Cybermen. That first shot in the end of episode one, when it pans up to its blank, open mouth face staring at the camera, yeah. is really distressing. <laughs> I actually I actually really like their sort of sing song thing, the mm-hmm. way they the way they speak, I think is really is, is effective and creepy. I mean they, they would abandon it almost immediately yeah. in the in the series, but I, I really like it. They open their mouths and these words come out. Yeah. No, I think it's Spooky, it's, yeah, and they're they're thought, very creepy. Their yeah. thought patterns are interesting too. Uh, Matt Kesson and I were just watching it before we recorded the podcast, and the, the thing that stood out for us was the the line, or at least for me, yeah, uh, we are stronger and more efficient. You must obey us mm-hmm. like, <laughs> because these are their values. There? Yes, it's yeah. like you are. We are stronger, and you must obey us is something that's common to human history. Yeah, we understand that, but we yeah. are more efficient. Yeah, and therefore you are compelled. I think, I think that was always associated with like you know Nazism and communism, I suppose. Certainly Nazism. Yeah. Well, and Italian fascism, making the trains run on time and all that, but uh, which they didn't, by mm-hmm. the way. That's just right. a f- oh, more of your revisionist history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fake Mussolini news. But uh, I, I, I do like the earlier. <laughs> Cybermen more when they're you know not just straight up robots but more like really messed up humans. They're strange looking. They have the body sock over their face, which does seem to be like your burn victim. Maybe design wise, not Tenth Planet era Cybermen, but uh, you don't like the fans on their crotch. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, they do have giant radar dishes as their cod pieces. And Which is kind of cool in, in, in some sense. <laughs> you got to cool it down. So. Yeah. Yep, yep. Just but, gets too hot down there. Well, I, I never particularly liked the Cybermen in the modern series where they literally just all march in formation all the time. And Well, they become well, they're, robots. They're, exactly. Yeah, they're just you, flat exactly. up robots. You need to yeah, see right. that human element for it to be scary. Yeah, sure. Do you remember that scene in The Five Doctors where the rest of the robot throws the javelin through one of the Cybermen? Mm-hmm. And it kind of stumbles around for a while, goes down on its knees, and vomits. Oh. I don't remember that. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like stuff it's, spews. It's out really of its remarkable. Mouth. I remember from Doctor Who magazine people complaining about it, like, "Oh, Cybermen, you know, oh, yeah, that that's ridiculous." But for me, that's the they wonder, need wonderful nutrients of some kind. Yeah. What's well, the wonderful body terror of the Cybermen? Right? Yeah, it's like what is. In there. In, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, know, yeah. I know Revenge of the Cybermen gets kind of looked down on by a lot of fans, but I always kind of liked it because it is just sort of Cybermen that are much more recognizably human under all this plastic and crap and messed up and think they're better than everyone. <laughs> well, you know, in a way, they are like a better analog to real world 
fascism than the Daleks are because mm. they are pathetic. They've yeah. replaced as much of them mm -hmm. themselves as they can possibly think of with more efficient things, stronger yeah. things. Right. And then they're still just gross and weird. <laughs> and then they also have the, the recruiting angle that, that occurs even here right. where there's the idea that they're going to make you into more of them, which is not really something that happens with Daleks. They have to do it by force. Right. No one would willingly do that. Exactly. <laughs> Daleks don't have You've that You've got a stocking on your face. No. <laughs> do that. There's this one scene that I love that I can't decide if it's accidentally great or intentionally great. That's, that's like the heart of Doctor Who. That is. Right that is. <laughs> a fundamental this question. fine line. It's when the Cyberman is sticking the microphone like a deranged reporter into everyone's face and demanding their <laughs> like name and their age and Hartnell is like fighting with them over the top and there's all this overlapping dialogue where the Cyberman is asking the questions of people but also answering William Hartnell's questions and he's yelling and I can't tell if it's though as an actor reacting to Hartnell jumping his lines ha! but it's really effective it's bizarre and kind of nightmarish but I have think? no answer no, <laughs> no, but yeah. I love that that's a question I will go with the uh, covering up Hartnell's mistake theory yeah, I could, think yeah. a happy accident well a lot of inventiveness happened because William Russell had to cover up oh. Bill Hartnell's <laughs> stuff and so by by this time in the series even after Ian's long gone I think people are like oh okay well <laughs> just be prepared for any Cybermen they're yeah. all getting ready to work with William Hartnell <laughs> just yes and him <laughs> <laughs> we Cybermen are better at improvisation than you time wars. We took a workshop with Del Close back in the 70s. So, <laughs> A couple quick final thoughts on the 10th planet. I just want to mention a few things. It's great that Polly recognizes Malaysia on the upside down <laughs> planet. Like Ben recognizes, hey, that's South America. She's like, that's Malaysia. That's my favorite. <laughs> Malaysia. Did she, did she do her thesis on Malaysia? What? I don't understand. It's wonderful, though. It seems like a, it's a weird thing to just look at a random globe and just go, hey, Malaysia. Right. And that's what clues you in that it's Earth. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is just like earthly Malaysia. Yeah. And the, the, the version that we watched today, uh, well, of course, the fourth episode doesn't exist mm -hmm. except for clips. And mm -hmm. so we watched the uh, animated a reconstruction of it, which I think uh, for the most part is very good. Yeah, and I agree. Um, somebody had a smart idea when they were uh, drawing the Cybermen. One or two Cybermen have these weird, lumpy Cybermen distorted proportions that I think are specifically based on that one. I'm getting really nerdy here, guys. <laughs> that one Kelly Jones Cyberman Fourth Doctor story from Doctor Who magazine oh, back in yeah. the day. You remember wow. Kelly Jones who did the yep. Dead Man comics? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah like I do. A, I love it. It's very elongated and mm -hmm. very kind of really unnatural looking ribs. Bony yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, bony yeah. And stuff. Same. I didn't make the connection yeah. when I was watching it, but you're right. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to see if I can't find uh, an online version of that to link to in the show notes. Wow. But uh, there's that. And then uh, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I, I have to mention it again. There's a short story by an author named Paul Grice called Mondas Passing, which it's reprinted in one of the uh, short trips 
anthologies. And it's a short story about Ben reconnecting with Polly on December 31st, 1986, when their younger selves they know are in South America right now during the 10th planet, and unbeknownst to anyone else in the world, Mondas is passing, is being destroyed, and it's really a story about their failed connection over the years, where they were a couple and they are not a couple anymore, and he decides to go visit her on this particular day of all days because of their... Yeah. pre-existing relationship. Oh, and Another so. depressing story tied to the Cybermen. <laughs> <laughs> At least it has a romance to it. Yeah. That's the thing. So. Yeah, I, I guess the only humorous Cybermen thing I can think of is, like, Attack of the Cybermen when they, like, start reacting to gold like it's cartoon elephants reacting to mice. But what if, instead of gold, they went with the 10th planet and their weakness was movie projectors and they just <laughs> stuck with that for the rest of the history of the show <laughs> Sermon gets a little light in his eye and he's like ah, da, da, da. <laughs> oh here's a nice 16 millimeter film on uh, dairy production that we're going to show to the kids in school no <laughs> Steamboat Willie <laughs> Soviet tractor film <laughs> Yeah, in spare parts uh, The gold doesn't do anything He yeah, takes the gold nice leaf off herring. the statues And is like, ha ha, I'm going to attack you with it Rub, 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 rub <laughs> Like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> Don't stop. <laughs> well, I do think we have to end this round, but I do want to say something about uh, William Arnold's regeneration. And it is interesting to go back to this after this modern era where regenerations don't just happen like this, right? And this is really kind of vague, mm-hmm. mysterious, They don't explain small, what's happening. Yeah. Even the way it's presented. There is no modern era, like, victory lap of the William Hartnell era where he oh, goes yeah. back and visits all his companions or has a big speech. His final words are, thank you, it's good, keep warm. <laughs> Which That's think, actually pretty nice. I think yeah. keep warm, and especially the way Hartnell delivers it in a really soft voice is actually uh, really sweet. Um, it's really undramatic the way they do mm-hmm. it. He just, it, it, he just sort of, it's just very quiet, and well, he just kind of. It's back when the concept itself was such a dramatic, radical yeah. idea that you didn't need to didn't have to play it up. It's yeah. not a hero idea. It's not a ridiculous. No. Like, I'm the person that's going to come in and say, I'm going to bed now. And every time I revisit this, I try to decide, did he just die of old age or does it have something to do with Mondas? And theories are equal there because he says both of them. It's an outside influence unless this old body of mine is wearing a bit thin. It's headcanon either way. Yeah. If the the real answer is Bill Hartnell was gone at the end of this. (laughs) Uh, But but the idea that Mondas is sucking too much energy Mm -hmm. from the earth and that has something to do with it has... In aesthetic mm-hmm. resonance to it. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. So final thoughts on this? Do we like it? Oh, yeah. It's Doctor Who and all of its complicated seat of its yeah. pants form. Yeah. It's, it's hard to separate the history 
of the show from the story itself. But I think it has a lot of drama going for it. I love the early Cybermen. Yeah. They're creepy and weird, um, and as we've discussed, have a sort of weird sympathy to what they are, you know? Because, they, I mean, these ones have just human hands, and so that horror comes through more than well, in the can, modern Cybermen. You can Cybermen. see their, like, eyes yeah. sometimes. And that's weirder and sadder than the stomping robots. And you don't know what's going on under that mask, because you see human eyes, but then you also, they vocalize in that weird way. So you go, are they only is their face only human from like the eyes up? Like yeah. what's going on there? Yeah, and it's it's like the horror of desperate people, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't yeah. really know what their motivation is or what they want, or whatever they come in, and they do lots of horrible things, and then they wreck themselves. You know, yeah. Yeah, that yeah, seems yeah. <laughs> seems like a better analogy for fascism to me than the Daleks. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And <laughs> that great scene in the Z bomb silo where. Ben is looking for anything radioactive. Right. <laughs> He's just tearing the place is, apart. Is this radioactive? What's behind here? Is that radioactive? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That is, is that radioactive? Yeah. That one really unhelpful douchebag. You're wasting your time. There's nothing portable that's radioactive. And then he here. starts tearing it apart. He's yeah. like, all right, over here. Oh, yeah, here's... Well, yeah, except for these radioactive rods. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> We we were just using them as paperweights over here on the desk. (laughs) Well, thank you, listeners. This has been Get Off My World 2017. Uh, We'd like to thank our guest, Matthew Kesson. Thank you so much for having me. I always a pleasure. And Matt, you have a website. Yes, yes. uh, I have a website called RevMattsMonsterScience.com, which is where I do some of the stuff that you heard here tonight. And I do live shows around the Twin Cities area. So go to RevMattsMonsterScience.com or look it up on Facebook or Instagram and check it out. No doubt Matt will be a guest next year. We have big plans for 2018. We're going to go in a lot of different directions at once. Uh, We want to talk about Peter Capaldi's last episode in the near future, Twice Upon a Time. We're going to do an overview of Peter Capaldi's tenure on Doctor Who, and we're going to do reviews of stuff going forward, such as Big Finish's The War Master audios that are coming out. But in addition to that, we are going to go backwards in Doctor Who history. We're going to try to cover as many nooks and crannies of Doctor Who history as we can find, books, audios... And comics and whatever else we can dredge up. So we're not going Weird anywhere. Weird stuff written on napkins. <laughs> that we find in the woods. Kelvin's Nyctalope fan fiction. <laughs> it's all going to happen, our loyal listeners. And thank you again for joining us. I am Pat. I'm Matt Kesson. I'm Joshua. And I'm Kelvin. And we're saying... Get off my world! See, this is going to sound more like slash fiction the more and more we go on. <laughs> yep. Um, Nothing wrong with slash fiction. Oh. Well, some things wrong with slash fiction. <laughs> <laughs>